0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Podcast Network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Sign up to The Economist
1: for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to Economist.com
0: and get your first month free.
1: Welcome to We Are Libertarians Daily. I'm your host, Sarah Brady-Wagner, and today I am here with my friend, David Fitzgerald.
0: Hello, everybody. My name is David Fitzgerald. I guess kind of a quick background about myself. I was born and raised in North Carolina. I joined the North Carolina National Guard as an infantryman when I was 17, so back in 2011. I spent five and a half years in the North Carolina National Guard. I got to see and do some pretty cool things we might get into later. After that, I got out of the Army. I traveled around the world uh, for a little over half a year, visiting a lot of different places, uh, interacting with a lot of other militaries. So I feel like I kind of have a real-life perspective on foreign policy.
1: So David's here today to talk to us about uh, a, a an interesting topic to hear His take on particularly to an audience of libertarians, which is the global war on terror. Not necessarily the decades long, you know, thing that we've all been living through. I know I'm only 27, so it's pretty much been the majority of my life. Um, But in 2019, what is the global war on terror? What What is it going to mean to the rest of us? And how do you think, how do you see it playing out?
0: Okay, Sarah. So I think before I dive into what the global war on terror is in 2019, which is what I want to focus on. I think we should do a quick review of kind of what came before where we're at now. So, okay, so everyone remembers September 11th, 2001 happening. In response to that, President George Bush Jr. launched Operation Enduring Freedom, which was the invasion of Afghanistan initially by U.S. Special Operations Forces, the CIA, and the Defense Intelligence Agency. When they were on the ground, they established a plan to drive the Taliban out of Kabul and back into the mountains. Uh, They ended up fighting their last battles in 2001 and the start of 2002 in the Torbora mountain range. During that time, it was believed that we either killed or wounded Osama bin Laden. So we withdrew into a more defensive posture in Afghanistan by the middle of 2002. Were we wrong? No, we we did the right thing in Afghanistan. We came in and the special forces executed their mission. They teamed up with native Afghanis who had previously fought the Russians on their team. They fought back the Taliban, and the Taliban was essentially broken in Afghanistan. We targeted them because they had provided shelter to al-Qaeda, which had claimed responsibility for the September 11th attacks. Um So... The Bush administration saw an opening and Mm -hmm. they decided it was time to really expand the global war on terror because the case could be made that weapons and financiers and training was being provided by a host of other countries around the world. So our Department of Defense at the bequest of Dick Cheney, behest of Dick Cheney, (laughs) (laughs) um, (laughs) at the behest of Dick Cheney, the Department of Defense drew up a list of other countries that we had the potential to invade, to enact, uh, well, the new American century put together, which was a think tank Mm -hmm. that several prominent Bush cabinet members were members of. Um, and this plan called for us uh, essentially invading a good swath of North Africa and the Middle East.
1: So what, um, all right. So we are in, we have this list of places that we're going to invade. Do we just invade them all willy nilly? What's going on?
0: Well, essentially that's, What Congress gave the president the authority to do with the authorization of use of military force in 2001, we granted the president carte blanche to be able to invade all of these other countries. Our special forces are in over 140 countries right now.
1: Ah, yeah. It never went away, did it? No. No, we
0: just kept renewing it. It probably started at the end of World War II, but it became an open public tactic after 2001.
1: Well, and, and we shifted to what I like to call war on noun. (laughs) <laughs> it's really it's really great to have war on noun because there's no end to a war on a noun. Because how do you know when you've killed that? So what about the war on terror? It's a it's a really big overarching, you know, umbrella that kind of allows us to go on a lot of different fronts.
0: So and that's how it's been interpreted. We have used it to develop a whole range of military tactics and strategies that were not used previously in the world. In twenty nineteen in the global war on terror, we were using drone surveillance technology Against people that we have deemed Enemy of the state All around the world That skill is being perfected right now It's being used constantly Most of our newest drones Can stay in the air for 48 hours at a time Before having to land It's terrifying We rotate other drones In and out of the fleet So there's constant monitoring and those industries burn people out. The Air Force has a constant issue with trying to retain drone pilots. No one wants to stay in the position. The Army allows enlisted men to fly drones because we would never be able to fill the quota with officers. Um, other technologies that came out of that, your audience is probably really familiar with the intricacies of the Patriot Act. The Patriot Act gave us this massive surveillance state in response to the global war on terror. And in 2019, it's still just as real as it was in 2004 and five when it was being built
1: yeah I know i've read um i've read some interesting articles about how they're dealing with like new kind of new forms and new intensities of ptsd <clears throat> from those drone pilots mm-hmm. um because they, there was there was kind of an assumption that as, since you're at a distance they would deal with less um psychological issues but they don't not at all like you're, you're still having this very you know intimate issue where you're you're having the ability to not only survey but attack people from a distance and that's still just as graphic as doing it in
0: person. So when it comes to bombing in the military, the military, unlike law enforcement agencies, we accept collateral damage as a, as a rule of business. So, as a drone pilot, you you do fire missiles at cars, you fire them at houses, and other people do live in those cars and those houses, and some people don't like to watch that in HD. You, mm-hmm. I mean, it's commercially available. You can go on YouTube right now, and you can see limbs fly through the air in a drone strike because a lot of it's recorded.
1: And understandably, for a lot of people, it results in some PTSD issues. So are we going to keep doing this?
0: Uh, foreseeable future, definitely. So in 2019... The most common locations that are dealt with in the global war on terror, you guys will be familiar with the first three or four of them most likely. But the rest of them are ones that usually gain public notoriety when usually when one of our troops is KIA'd in one of those countries. Um, but we're in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, Egypt, Sudan, Niger, Tunisia, Somalia, Nigeria, Pakistan, Maui, and the list goes on and on. But these are countries that we have – Active counterinsurgency operations going on, and we usually guys these counterinsurgency operations as train, advise, and assist missions. In practicality, what it usually turns into is the U.S. military having to form the backbone of these other countries' militaries to carry out these counterterrorism operations because hey, just realistically these countries are, are bad at this part of the job. Like Their militaries are deficient, and the other side is really well-trained and gets to practice war on multiple continents.
1: So, do, so well. In your opinion, then, are, are we helping really, or <clears throat> it almost sounds like like you would be perpetuating a, like a moral hazard almost? Like how how do they win? How do we make sure that they have the ability to train up those military forces if we're constantly sending in our own in order to do so? And is that necessarily the proper role for the U.S. government or the U.S. military at least?
0: I say yes and no. I think. When your audience thinks about the global war on terror, I brought some real statistics with this. We think about GWAT, and we think about how massive it is. The estimates are that it's added $2.4 trillion to our debt since 2001. And by fiscal year, we spent $31 billion on the war on terror the first year. And by 2009, we spent $197.1 billion that year on the global war on terror. So. People look at this massive drain on resources and they say, is this the role of the taxpayer money? That's usually the direction I see a lot of libertarians on both sides come at the issue because more left libertarians see that this could be great domestic resources. More right libertarians say, hey, that could be a lot more money in the hands of our private sector to Mm -hmm. do work with it. So I I think honestly the right answer is a restructuring of how we spend our military and defense resources. We We maintain this massive – battleground infrastructure all over the world but realistically we're in a ballistic missile age we won't have large standing wars like that this is kind of the the ultimate checkmate is that we can end the entire planet if anyone gets too cranky so resizing and reshaping our forces to be able to help countries deal with internal issues without ourselves becoming mud like air support in other countries i don't necessarily agree with with us dropping ordinance in other countries. That's how we create a lot of the domestic terror, or I mean, a lot of the organic terrorism issues.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, blowback is a real thing.
0: But on the ground, training advisors are necessary. I've seen these countries operate. One of the first things that we do is we try to teach them a civil code of law at war, which is unique. That's good. America and Australia and Britain are very unique in that. We don't show up into countries and tolerate war crimes. We teach these countries how to treat their citizens. We make them follow a law and a procedure. We don't let them use... Harsh and terrible punishments and things like that. We don't let them beat each other. Like there are a lot of things that we restrict the host country from being able to do while we're present, which is good for humanity, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems certainly seems like it's furthering, I guess, with the ideal of human rights issues.
0: It is, and I know it's a weird way to look at it because it's human rights with guns in your hands. <laughs> but other cultures sometimes that's that is the language they currently communicate mm-hmm. in, and you you do have to speak the local language.
1: Well, and if people are violating those rights with guns, then that's the way to defend do you well i guess yeah my my concern with with the with the interventionism around the global war on terror has always been that terrorism in and of itself is always it's it's homegrown in some way everywhere it is because you're having people who are living in that community who are perpetrating these issues now Mm -hmm. sometimes yes you do have people who are coming in from abroad and i think that's becoming a greater issue um But how do we help the communities to to deal with these real issues of, like, ideology in there? Like, you've got some people with some terrible ideas who are trying to force them on you in your community. How do we help to empower people to defend themselves rather than relying on the U.S. government to always do so?
0: So... Now I'm, gonna, I'm going to ask you and your audience now to try to imagine something. So I've lived on the ground in third world countries with local villagers. We would just talk to people and they would let us stay with them. And we traveled through Southeast Asia, part of the Indian subcontinent that way. Um, and there's something that a lot of people don't realize, and that's that Africa is even more wild and untamed than that. Like there, there is a basic technology infrastructure, but once you're out in the bush – you were out in the bush, and that's where a lot of these organizations recruit from. So if you grow up in a village where there's no outside influence and all of your elders are this radicalized, it is, it's is—it's just by nature passed down to these groups of people. And a lot of people fail to factor that in. And then the other phase of it is that groups like Daesh, uh, Boko Haram, al-Shabaab, they filled their roles with a lot of international soldiers. So we always think about the the mercenary system of the Western world. We think about Blackwater, triple canopy groups like that. There is another version of that that operates to the Asian peninsula that is made up of various types of Asian men. And that's what they are. They're professional soldiers. They're paid a living wage. They show up and they fight in these battlefields all over the world and they bring professional tactics with them like we do. So they quickly, usually militarily overwhelm the local force. I've got like 35 examples off the top of my head, of host countries in worlds that we've been working with and arming and training. They're just, they're just overwhelmed. Their tactics don't compare to that of the attacking forces and the attacking forces is a, is a global military contracting group.
1: So would you say it sounds like by, by spreading our our military, uh, not only our military skills, but values that that is in some areas, the best way that we can spread democracy and American values. I don't know. That sounds kind of,
0: I don't like the democracy piece of that because every people has the right to self-rule, and it's not going to look the same. That's true. And I think it's undermining the true concept of freedom of thought if we assume that their freedom has to operate in the same box that we have. Uh, Culturally, I mean a lot of them have a more at-peace interaction with the government, whereas we tend to be very rebellious by nature and see the government as constantly imposing on us. There are a lot of societies who see it quite differently than that.
1: That's true. I mean, you see this a lot in um, Eastern cultures. There's there's more there's more of an emphasis on. I it wouldn't even necessarily say like a collectivist mindset, but there's this this you know idea of putting the community above the individual. Kind of gives them that more comfort and gives them more trust in the government, is it? Because then they can trust that those people who are in the government also are putting the community above the individual.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We don't we don't necessarily believe that. We're like, if I'm out for me, so are you.
0: Okay, so I want to ask you a question then, Sarah. how kind of how what other ways have you heard it explained that we could withdraw our posture from the global war on terror and not have the system implode in on itself because i I really am trying to wrap my head around an understanding of where that's a plausible honestly,
1: I haven't, but the the argument that I've always heard is is we have to step back and question if if that's if if maintaining um our involvement in order to prevent a collapse is a necessarily a, an inherent good thing you know if if we've created more of a problem to begin with then yes it might hurt to the idea would be like it might hurt to rip the band-aid off but you know sometimes you have to then let
0: i think metaphors underplay what it is we're talking about right now yeah. so instead of band-aid could you say like tens of thousands of people killed by Boko Haram.
1: Well, I mean, that's the thing is the idea is who, how are we the ones who have the right to determine how that plays out in their culture? So and I don't, I don't necessarily have the answer to that. I'm always you, interested to hear what people think, especially people who have been more involved.
0: Well, see, this is, I, I look to actual facts on the ground for this. So a lot of civil war situations, I don't believe are good places for America to intervene. If one group is only marginally better or just politically, ideologically a little different than the other side that's not a place where we need to be involved because then we're just going to be contributing to the waste of human lives other situations where you see a well-developed tactical force sweeping through a country subjugating the population and trading them in open-air slave markets you can identify that as a blight to humanity and you know you have the resources and also the willing people in your country so that that's another perspective in this is if we can do it For the right price, meaning that it does not become a gigantic economic draw on our system, and we can do it to help people who are actually being slain, and we have people who are here willing to do it that are not having to be drafted for it, then we kind of have a right alignment of the stars. It's it's difficult to accept from a Mm -hmm. policy standpoint, but also sometimes you just have to look at the issues that are occurring in the world and and try to address them as they come. It's not a vacuum.
1: Yeah. would you be interested, perhaps, in coming on on a debate to talk about this at some point?
0: Absolutely, because
1: because I'm I'm thinking I have I have a couple of friends who who hold different views who I'd love to hear the two of you discuss.
0: I would love that too. I'll be a lot more passionate for that because when people try to debate you back and forth on this, you can measure. I can measure personally the value of this in human lives, mm-hmm. and there's a sacrifice on the American side, and we always talk about how great that sacrifice is. But we lose relatively few people at war, which does not diminish their loss. Their loss is still tremendous, and it's mm-hmm. a huge sacrifice to both them and their families. But you know, it's, you make a good point. We still families. have a
1: volunteer army.
0: But for that exchange of American lives, we save – well, if utilized properly. The invasions of I- Iraq were, were a waste of massive human amounts, or massive amounts of human life on both sides. The intervention in Libya was the same thing. So I'm not saying just because we decide to enter into a war that we're going to be saving lives because a lot of times it's not used that way. A lot of these smaller African nations that we're involved in right now, I think that's more of a justified use of force than the invasion of the Middle East was.
1: So, how does how does the global war on terror going to impact American citizens? I mean, that's we've we've been talking about kind of the foreign policy front of this, but there's also you know the domestic. Patriot Act, domestic the surveillance front of this. You know, are American citizens going to be treated in, as terrorists, um, and how is it going to affect? the everyday
0: person. I'm pretty sure the answer to that has already been, yes, you've met your local friendly t- TSA agent outside of that. They've really de- developed skills that we will never be able to overcome as a population. I'm not talking about military skills where they could impose their will, but their ability to surveil you. Unless the private sector provides something else for us that is far more difficult for the NSA to penetrate, we will,
1: They're working on
0: it. We will never be free of NSA surveillance at this point, should they choose to use the machine against you. So, this is kind of on us now to develop domestic policy to actually keep this in check. We don't have enough transparency in these agencies. And a lot of times they claim national secrecy as as a reason. Like
1: national security.
0: Yeah. There's another word I was looking for. I I don't know.
1: Confident. Well, usually they claim confidentiality due to national security reasons.
0: Yep. Mm. Can't reveal sources and methods.
1: Yep. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Everything's redacted. <clears throat> you know, this is actually something I've, I've had some interesting debates with people about, too. Is, is the, how, how do you draw that line on that transparency? Because sometimes you do have to redact things to keep people from um, being put in harm's way.
0: So, I know that I've kind of done an excellent job so far of sounding like a military interventionist. <laughs> I actually kind of want to talk about a, a philosophical and psychological thing that's happening domestically Mm -hmm. that I'm kind of would sound like I'm coming from the other side on. So we have developed because in the world, it is a real thing that there, there are people who are jihadists and they self identify as jihadists and every day they wake up and they live their life in pursuit of the jihad.
1: What does that mean for, for anybody who doesn't really like I think there's a, a, a popular like idea of that, but how would you define someone who is on jihad?
0: So, it's about advancing the will of their God, and I, I won't say his name just because I'm not from that particular sex. I've, I don't mean any disrespect. Um, so it could be something very simple and very friendly. Their job personally could – because they're Muslims who fall all over the spectrum. There are people whose personal jihad is to go out and be kind every single day so that people have a different perspective of what Islam is. And then there are also people every single day who wake up and build pipe bombs or build IEDs. Or they train on their militia skills so that they will be effective fighters one day when it's necessary to wage their jihad against the West to advance a Wahhabist belief of Islam. Um, so in America, we've kind of developed the opposite side of it. We have what I would consider a crusader segment of the population now, and they really break down in two separate categories. You have crusaders who join the military or they become cops or firemen or EMTs or they're otherwise civilian professionals who then dedicate a portion of their time to attending marksmanship classes, uh, survival preparation type courses. Uh, they train in combatives with their friends. They work out regularly. They usually maintain pretty good physical fitness. That's one sect of the crusader population because they have been shaped by all of us growing up now in 17 or 18 years of war against the Middle East essentially we have seen that and subconsciously we have really absorbed that and developed a we want to fight against something mentality and it, it perpetuates a lot of the actions that we take in our physical lives and I feel like there are a lot of conservatives out there or conservative uh, libertarians who will identify kind of with that part of the crusader message and Then there's an opposite segment of the crusader population where you have become addicted to first person shooter video games and everything is hashtag operator <laughs> And you want a keyboard really, warrior really hard about what the Middle East is doing. And I, I don't disagree with this segment of the population either because a lot of times they genuinely are trying to advance the, the message just usually through memes, not so much actions. Yeah. So we, we now really do have a world where there is a jihad population in the world, but also a Western crusader segment of the population too.
1: We got to come up with some new, new front. I like the Crusader segment. So, so you've got SJWs, and you've got Crusaders. You know, maybe we could come up with a fun acronym for that too. <laughs> but you know, I think you know you could even make an argument though that everybody's just going for their own version of what they think justice is. So everybody's their own version of a justice warrior. You're right.
0: I feel like our society really encourages us to take mm-hmm. a stance strongly about something now.
1: Yeah. Virtue, Which is better
0: than not standing for anything.
1: That's true. It's virtue signally taken to a whole new level. <laughs> well, is there anything else that you wanted to make sure to touch on or fun information? Or I'm really glad that we had this conversation and I think it can lead to some fun topics down the road.
0: Okay, cool. I want to get into a couple just real life examples of the global war on mm-hmm. terror exemplified. They're kind of humorous. So George W. Bush announced the invasion of Iraq on March 20th, 2003. By May 1st of 2003, George Bush gave his mission accomplished speech from an aircraft carrier.
1: Yeah, that's one of the most famous
0: moments. So, and technically he was right on one front. We had, the American military had essentially by itself, only two other countries decided to join us on the invasion against Iraq. The UN voted it down and told us not to do it. We engaged Iraq. We destroyed their entire army in approximately 21 days, but we waited two months to give the the mission accomplished speech. Then a massive insurgency grew in Iraq, and uh, here we are today, still in Iraq. Mission accomplished. But very similarly, in the following administration, President Obama in 2010 states that we have achieved our mission in Iraq and the combat operations are being brought to an end. We even launched a new Title for it, we called it Operation New Dawn because it was a brand new Iraq. Meanwhile, there is a group of Green Berets who were planning to launch a raid four hours after Obama gave the speech that we had officially ended combat operations in Iraq.
1: So, so are you saying that executives like to make broad sweeping claims for for perhaps maybe the glory rather
0: than the reality? Yeah, I believe uh, President Trump has now take to be very fair. President Trump has now taken a swing at this. Declaring ISIS defeated when, in fact, Daesh has mostly just shifted gears. It's diverted a lot of its resources and its technical training to African countries now where it's having more success because the Middle East became essentially too hot of an area. You can't fight two world powers at the same time Mm -hmm. with Russia and Iran fighting Daesh on the ground in Syria and America and our allies and the Kurds fighting them on the ground in Syria and Iraq. There was – there was nowhere for them to operate in that battle space. They were just being overwhelmed. And At the end of the day, people are going to protect their own lives. They're they're going to flee when it becomes inevitable, unless they can't. Then, in a lot of times, these battles, they will strap suicide belts to themselves and go detonate. That
1: hmm. just reminds me we'll have to record another podcast on, on refugees and at another point. <laughs> Come on, I like discussing with people who have have, mixed bag. Yeah, I mean, I think that's it. I always like to say, if you're not not confused, you're probably not thinking.
0: Oh, and for anyone who hasn't seen it, that wants to kind of get a boring real-life appreciation of what modern warfare can look like, most of the Battle of the Philippines Army versus Abu Saif was recorded via drones that were flying around the city to try to gain information on the other positions. Mm-hmm. A lot of people also had helmet cams. The Philippines government actually put it together on a tape and released it on YouTube. Good editing. Yeah, it actually has pretty good editing, and you get an inside look at, at what a modern battle will look like. I mean, we've seen the famous pictures of Syria and what a bombed-out city looks like, but to see very large Filipino cities caught up in the middle of this mm-hmm. it it looks a lot more like what would happen if new york engaged in a battle tomorrow
1: well i mean I, that's always the great american fear that's what gets us to continue funding our military and just keeping that fight abroad isn't it
0: good healthy paranoia
1: yeah is it healthy paranoia or is it overblown paranoia
0: definitely overblown paranoia we allowed it to get us to invade the middle east which was ridiculous
1: if as we wrap up, then, is there anywhere that any of our listeners could find you if you want to be found? If you don't want to be found, then that's okay, too. I'm
0: pretty cool with not being found.
1: Okay. All right. Well, so do not find David, um, but we'll be sure to have him on to discuss more foreign policy issues. From It's it's important to have that kind of perspective of someone who's been on the ground.
0: I'm just kidding, guys. Uh, Sarah will probably have me tagged on Facebook in this. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Your guests are awesome. I appreciate this.